Well, this is The New Activist. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you and to be a part of this weekly show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues. I love that we get to do this together, and I am really excited to share with you the conversation that I got to have today with our guest, Jen Habmaker. Jen probably does not need an introduction, but it would be rude not to introduce her. So I will say that Jen is uh, just an incredible author, speaker, pastor, mom, activist, and we're going to talk about all of that in the interview. And, you know, one of the things that I really like about this interview that really made me very excited to talk to Jen was not only that I've read her books and have long respected her and just the way that she carries herself and bravely cares for people, but also the way that She really deeply loves the church, and uh, this conversation is a little bit more personal than we normally do. Normally, I'm just the one asking questions, but Mrs. Hatmaker just has a way of bringing out things in other people and pastoring (laughs) even the interviewer. So uh, I look forward to sharing the entire story with you. It is worth noting that the conversation that we had actually happened in the week between Palm Sunday and Easter. So you're going to hear some references to that because that was clearly on the front of both of our minds. But uh, it is, of course, timeless. Here is the conversation that I was privileged to have with Jen Hatmaker. Okay, so I had a really epic first question for you, and I was really ready for it, but then everything went away because last night I was on the website of your church, Austin New Church, and I saw that your husband preached a Palm Sunday sermon with what is absolutely the greatest title ever for a sermon. This The sermon title was called Grand Theft Donkey. <laughs> Do you know this? And I don't even think it's a question. I just want to talk about how that happened and how amazing that is and who branded that. And also, it's just the end of sermon branding. At this point, we just go back (laughs) to calling it by scripture. Grand Theft Donkey for Palm Sunday. How does that happen? I mean, listen, I don't think it's any huge surprise that we tend to sort of uh, color outside the lines in any in any capacity that we can, including sermon branding. That is hilarious. And um, so first of all, he did talk about that in the sermon, but I'm going to have to give credit where credit is due, which is to our sort of lead business partner in church. He's our pastor on staff that does all that. And he just on the regular does stuff like this without asking. Like, you know what? I think I'm just going to call it this and post it and let's just roll the dice. Like, sure. What could go wrong? Um, so yeah, we sometimes have to intercept things he has sent out. Uh, Let me give you an example. Yeah. This is way off topic for your podcast, but you know, here we are. I mean, who cares? What are we doing? Um, So when we were first starting this church a decade ago, in fact, our first Sunday was Easter 10 years ago. Exactly. So, um, 10 years ago this week, um, we, were just a little rabble scrabble group of people. Like we just, it was just randoms and ne'er do wells and, you know, um, just ragamuffins who had cobbled together this little church plan. And, um, but people were coming to it for reasons that are still incredibly unclear. And so we, we realized at some point, like already into it a bit, we need to figure out a way to like talk to these people. We need a communication plan um, to, to make connection or to t- give news or details or information. So um, our Trey, who is the aforementioned person, um, was in charge of putting together some sort of database. And so he yeah. is gathering these names and, and, and contact info from all these people, all these people that had been coming or visiting or calling or trying. And he's going to put them into a database. And so he's going to send out a test email. Let's just see if it works. So he's going to send out a test email to himself only. Oh, I, I'm, I'm already, already I'm nervous. You know. Like you already just know this is going so south. Keep of going. Of course it is. Of course please it's going hit, south. Please don't hit send. Please don't hit send to the whole group. Yeah, just, Keep going. Just to myself. <laughs> just right back to my own self. Yeah, so yeah. it says like what he sends out is this is a test email, blah, 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 your mom. That's all it says. <gasps> That's literally all it said. Like just a, uh, he, he was a, so a close. and then some weird garble and then an insult. <laughs> and, um, he sent it to everybody, everybody that of had course. ever even called us or said, we are interested in what you're doing in the city. Oh. And so I just, that's the kind of stuff. That's the person that labeled that grand theft donkey. So same and, guy, 10 years later, oh. no difference. 
please tell him that he has my just undying respect. Okay. And it was just a really perfect, beautiful thing. And also yes. uh, uh, regarding that early email, all he would have had to have done is just not write your mom on the end. No, and it would have been like, everybody would have just been you. like, no, nah, thank cute. you. Thank no, you for understanding why we all just, but why? Like, but yeah. why? Why, this why did just, it have to have that? Why? Yeah. Let's just restart and yeah. we'll just start with a whole exactly. new group of people. Um, <laughs> I, love, I, I love your church. And I read in, was it seven? Mm-hmm. I forget what book you write about it in, but about that early yes. church experience of you and Brandon yeah. uh, planning it. And also seven at some point, we need to talk okay. about how that pretty much wrecked my life. No, but I same. respect the writing. <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, so, but you guys planted Austin new church. Tell me why plant another church? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, first of all, we live in Austin, Texas, so I don't know what your listeners know about our community, but it is very unchurched. Austin is this one strange outpost in the great sea of Texas um, that actually doesn't have a church on every corner and church um, attendance or partnership in any way is not the norm. Uh, Virtually none of our neighbors and our colleagues are connected in any meaningful way to church or um, to a faith community. And so at least here in our city, there is... um, there is a hunger and a need for just more churches. There really are. Like anytime a pastor tells us, I'm moving to Austin, we're like, yay, bring your friends. Like we need a hundred more of you yesterday. And so um, so we saw the need in our community for sure in such a, it's an, you know, Austin's a really interesting place because it's very, very, very high on philanthropy, very, very high on volunteerism, um, but very, very low on church. And I'm like, we're speaking the same language. Uh, we simply need to connect these dots. And so um, we, listen, let me be honest with you. When we yeah. left our last church before we started ANC, I, I, we have been in church work, full-time church work, our entire adult lives. And I'm a pastor's kid. So I'm like no stranger Gosh. to the church. And so not only did I swear I was not going to marry a pastor, swear, I was just going to marry like an accountant, you know, like somebody normal, like an engineer. I don't know what the other jobs are. That's right. And, um, that's, that's your whole, that's your that's whole really framework. All I know. Like I know there's accountants, right. I know there's right. I'm assuming there are right. other career paths, but I don't know them. Right. The additive inverse of pastor right. is engineer. Just, so that that's makes all sense. I have. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so when we left that last church, which as church can be hard, it was a hard everything. It was a hard experience. It was a hard time and it was a hard exit. Um, I remember asking Brandon when we were just sort of, what are we doing? Like, where, where are we going and what are we craving? I I asked him, I said, can I just, do you have any other skills? Like it literally, is there anything Uh, else you can do? I I just name it and I, we will figure it out. I'll send you back to school. I just don't know. But you know, cause church is a wonky thing, isn't it? It is just, it's, it's, troublesome. I'm sorry for the rain, by the way, it's raining really hard in my house and sorry for all your it listeners. Is what it is. Um, no, so it's totally I, fine. but the thing is, dang it, we just cannot help ourselves. We cannot help ourselves, but love the church and believe in it and believe in its better angels and imagine mm. that the way it was sort of invented and described and even prescribed to whatever degree the Bible prescribed church, which is actually sort of skeletal that it could, it still mm. had the capacity to be incredible good news in any given community. And so just like two fools, we just decided to try and we thought, well, we're going to keep this thing pretty simple, as simple as we can. We're going to grab a handful of principles that feel really Jesus-y. That's a technical term. Um, and mm. that's the only thing we're going to care about. We are, we're going to dial it in so tight. So still to this day, 10 years later, Austin new church is very, very simple. Like we do, it's not a complicated church. We do not have a lot of programming. Not that there's anything wrong with that at all. Um, this isn't a right or right. A wrong in any capacity. We just know our community. Our community is not interested yeah. in a very churchy church. Um, and so, mm. It's not, but it's simple. It's very, very humble. It's very, very honest, incredibly transparent, wide, wide, wide table. We have every kind of person um, that comes and they are welcome to come. And so um, I will tell you that after a decade, and I, I mean this sincerely, I'm, I'm, I'm trolling my heart right now to see if I'm telling the truth. And I am It yeah. still 
the most beautiful, wonderful gathering of weirdos I have ever imagined. And I love it. And I love them. And I love our little church. And it's honestly been almost entirely a joy to be a part of this faith community in this city. Well, and, and, and that is beautiful and I love it. And I, but I have to like, like how, how did, how did that environment, how was that environment created? Because I just, I, I mean, I'm thinking of my own junk and we don't have to get into that, but yeah. like sometimes I just, I am disillusioned. And I, if I honestly God, if I didn't have children, I don't know that I would ever show yeah. up to a church and I still, it's hard to sing. You know, yeah. I'm just like, there has been yeah. some like wounding from this place. Same. Yet I see you tweet and write and share consistently about how much you love this place. So I'm just curious, like mm. you said it was simple and there's not a lot of programming, mm -hmm. but like there's still a lot of people there and people are generally kind of you know, a mess. yeah, that's right. So how, yeah. how are you able to traverse that and still have your heart intact, still believe mm -hmm. that this is a place, still be a place that is mm -hmm. compelling to your soul? I appreciate your honesty. Uh, I share so much of your disillusionment and it's cousin disappointment. That's you know, I, as I watch the the church at large, and of course, it's not a monolith. It's really hard to describe the American church. You know, there's just so many slivers in that pie chart and hard to wrangle it into one descriptor or to put us all in the same category. But just in general, I would even say as um, culture perceives the church, uh, just watching its alliances and posture in our culture right now, I don't. I do not mean to exaggerate when I say it is devastating. Yeah. I mean, I am devastated. It breaks my heart. I am heartbroken um, at so much of the way the church engages our, our culture, our politics, its own communities, its own people. I'm like you. I've mm. been on the receiving end of a lot of church pain, mm. um, even church betrayal, if we can just be honest. And so I understand deeply and not from afar. I, I intrinsically and personally understand the impulse to just walk. I do. I get mm. it. And I have zero judgment for that. I, I literally understand exactly why people are like, I'm just going to find Jesus in the trees, like in the <laughs> grass, in right. the ocean. I get it. Um, I think what has salvaged my hope, I guess, in the church and certainly my own personal connection to it, um, has been a reimagining of what it had to look like. I don't know what your history is. I would love to unpack that with you because I bet we have a lot in common. My, my history in church was, uh, started out incredibly traditional hmm. and I, I would call it on the right on the razor's edge of traditional and fundamental. Yeah. So way geared that direction. Um, so I grew up with a bit of a shame culture and certainly a fear culture. Very, very, I was frankly afraid of God, but, um, so it was behavior driven, you know, very much by those sorts of, um, measurables that they have made very clear. And, and then I moved into big church world. So, um, then I went to like in my adult life, I was more a part of cool church. Do you know what I mean by that? I do. Uh, yeah, I was in cool church, big, mega, fancy you know, uh, entertaining. Um, and to be fair, saw a lot of spiritual growth there. A lot of people come to Jesus in that environment. A lot of people find their way in there. And that is good. That is, yes. this is good. This is not an all bad, all good scenario. That's right. Um, but I think when I got to the end of that season, I was just starving. I was starving for something that felt simple and true and good. And that's it. That's all I wanted. I wanted simple true and good. I, I don't want anything outside of that. I did not want entertain. I didn't want to be entertained. I didn't want to be coddled. Um, I didn't, I didn't want any, I didn't want any of that at all. I, in fact, I wanted the opposite. I wanted liturgy. I wanted something deeply, deeply grounded, something even ancient. I wanted almost boring and lame. Mm. Does that make sense? It <laughs> like, does. No, it does. I wanted a lame pastor who would like wear a cardigan. You know, right. um, I wanted a band that was just almost crappy, right. um, you know, like <laughs> your uncle, your uncle's playing the drums, you know what I mean? Um, and just something that felt really real and honest and, um, unpolished and unproduced. And so we just did that. We were like, well, let's just make it. 
let's just, we know we're a mess, you know, we know we're unpolished. And so we just sort of struck out and let me tell you, we got a lot wrong at the beginning. So this is not, and then we got church all right. That's not that story. Yeah, We got a lot wrong. We false started a lot and we were kind of, because we were operating out of our woundedness, um, we were, we we were just (laughs) swinging at the air back then. Like half of the things that we built was simply like, it was kind of like holding up a middle finger. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah. and so I think we've since matured and settled into our own story. And, um, and, and so somehow this little random church and it is little, it's not a big church. It's not big at all. Um, it just has managed to hang on to its very tender DNA, um, that loves people and is absolutely committed to not spit shining the whole operation, both what the church looks and feels like and what we look and feel like. And so, um, it's just keeps being hopeful to me and I'm grateful. I'm really grateful because I, um, had I experienced one more space that left me spiritually starved, I think I might've walked too. I, it was, I was a pastor at a extremely fancy church and Mm -hmm. it was reading about, was it the Easter service where you guys decided Mm -hmm. to, uh, bail on, what is it? Bail on your normal service and go and give news away. Can you, we do do it every Easter. Yeah. Tell me about that. Cause we just, uh, by the time this comes out, Easter will have happened three days before. So what do you do on Easter? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, your listeners will need to go, go over to my page. Cause at that point I will have posted some really beautiful pictures from this, but, Mm -hmm. um, every Easter we, instead of having service and it, it came out of a fundamental question, like, Holly, this is supposed to be our highest holy day, right? This is the day when Jesus split history in two. This is it. Like, this is the deal. This is where all like the resurrection and the hope and the beauty and the goodness we're saved, like against all odds, we've been saved. Like that's the day. And then I look at the church, the American church specifically, and I see Easter eggs being dropped from helicopters. And I see families spending a lot of money on, on outfits. Believe me, I did all this. Yeah. Not yeah. only did I do all this, I helped plan all this once oh, yeah. upon a time. So I am complicit in yeah, that expression of Easter. But I, I was just like, I don't, this is, doesn't match. These don't match. Um, this is not the story that we should be telling the world about the best day of our year. And so that question transitioned to, all right, well, if we really believe that this day represents literally the hope of humanity, this is the gospel good news day, then who can we think of that needs to hear it, but would not be either welcomed or comfortable in in a church environment that's fancy? with new shoes and beautiful clothes and helicopter Easter eggs. Like who needs this, but will not find their way into the church expression of this day. And so we were thinking about our homeless community, which God had already very deeply connected us to. So that was not just a super far reach, but so that's the setup to say that every Easter, instead of having a service in our church, we, our whole faith community goes downtown and we meet under the highway overpass. And we have this enormous church service with our homeless community. And it's evolved into something that's just phenomenal. So at this point, like this year, for example, um, we give a new pair of shoes to every single person there. And so we have dialed this into a very good a metric that we figured out. So everybody gets new shoes, which is really exciting and fun. And we have, we, we have a feast. So we have this huge feast and we set tables with like tablecloths and flowers and, and different families or groups of friends host each table. So there's a lot of one-on-one interaction. So we bring cards and games and all kinds of stuff. It's really, really fun. What a dignity preserving way to do this, right? Yeah. Oh, it's so much fun. We have a mobile vet clinic because a lot of our homeless friends have pets. So we service all their pets and give them all their shots and nails and just all of it. And, um, we, we give them things that they need, things they've asked for this year. We have backpacks to give away. I'm super excited because everybody always wants a bag. So this, that's a good addition. And, and we worship and we share communion and it's met. It's super mess. Like if you're looking for something that's not chaotic, please do not come. I mean, it is, it's really, really messy, but it is just, 
it feels right. It feels like the Easter Jesus died for. It feels like the hope that we believe in. It feels like the community we want to build. And so um, for us, of course, this is this coming Sunday. It's the best day of the year. Uh, we are, it's just really a thrill and an honor to get to to be a part of God's work like that. Oh man, that is just deeply beautiful. I mean, that is just, ex- is. I just love that. Well, we are taking a break so that I can remind you that the new activist is presented by International Justice Mission. IJM is working to end slavery in our lifetime and won't stop until all are free. And actually, in September, we are hosting an amazing gathering. It is called Liberate, and it is a global gathering that will include all of IJM's staff and uh, volunteers and really everybody all around the world who is passionate about ending slavery. Also, the new activist will be recording six live shows. We are finalizing the guest lineup for those six shows, and I can't tell you who the people are, but it is going to be incredible. So if you would like to come to Liberate, learn more, and come and see also the new activist live, go to liberategathering.org. And if you end up buying tickets, you can enter in the promo code the new activist, all one word together, the new activist, and get $20 off your ticket. LiberateGathering.org. I look forward to seeing you in September. Here is the rest of the conversation with Jen Hatmaker. Kind of in surveying your life on the internet, which is like a dangerous, awful place, but um, <laughs> right, like it, I, I was trying to do kind of a, trying to synthesize the breadth of your activism, and it mm-hmm. feels like everything kind of falls into the following categories: it's the impoverished, ending slavery, mm-hmm. care for refugees, care for children. Um, is that a decent summary? Close. It feels great. Those are, I care about all that. I care that about is the things. stuff we put a lot of weight behind. Well, so that's the question. How do you decide where to jump in? Because there is no shortage of need. I mean, truly week by week, there is another massive injustice mm-hmm. coming to the forefront and it's almost injustice fatigue. Maybe I'm projecting what I think, but I'm just curious, like, how do you dig in? When do you know, like, all right, yeah. I'm going to put my flag on the ground with this one. Oh man, it's such a good question. And you're so right. I mean, we're actually not built to receive this quantity of hard and bad news. We're just not, we're not, we don't have the capacity for it. Um, and so I, I absolutely affirm your assessment that it's an overwhelming time to be a believer in the world. It's an overwhelming time to be an activist in the world. Um, that, our, our knowledge now of horrors and atrocities and human rights abuses in the world is just so beyond what our parents were even aware of simply because of access to news. So, so that's not fake what you're saying. That is a very, very real response, um, to an overwhelming intake of information. Like what on earth can I do? Should I do, where do I start? And so I think what I find to be a very frequent reaction to that is just paralysis. Like, I guess I'll just do nothing. You know, like I, I don't know what to pick and I don't know what to do. And it feels the problem feels so enormous. And I don't know how to, what difference does it make or where do I, what's my foothold here? And so how about just none? How about just nothing? Um, and so the first thing I want to say to everybody listening is that there is no right or wrong answer to the question you, you just asked. There is no, this is the path to take because it's worse. That's right. Or this is the path to take because um, it's a bigger problem. Or uh, they're just, that. that is not a real, that's not a real path through the question. Um, so I, I have a lot of freedom in telling people, just pick. Like just where I follow my heart a lot on that. Like I pay attention to what my body is telling me as I take in news, like which is the one that grabs me by the throat? You know, what is the thing that like grips my heart in compassion and or sorrow? Um, Because sometimes our our hearts will lead us well. Our souls will tell us what we feel deeply connected to for reasons we either do or do not understand. Um, And so for us, we are deeply and personally connected to a lot of the issues that you named. Specifically, we're obviously connected to sort of 
what initially was the orphan crisis in the world, which led us deeper into the story, into the narrative, and ultimately to the root of the problem, which is economic disempowerment Mm -hmm. and lack of opportunity. So we spend a lot of our energy and our money and our influence working to, to uproot that systemic issue. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay. For example, our two youngest children are adopted. They are Ethiopian. Um, they've been with us now almost seven years. Both of them have, to our surprise, because when we went into the um, orphan discussion in space, we were very, very green, very naive, assuming that the children we were going to adopt were, when we heard orphan, we thought orphan. We yeah. thought no parents, no uh, aunts and uncles, no safety net, no community around them. They're just alone in the world. So what we discovered is that not only our children, but most of the world's orphans have at least one living parent. Mm -hmm. And this sent us down this rabbit hole, again, following my heart, like I'm devastated. I'm, I am crushed at this, um, of trying to understand their roots and their family story. And then realizing that literally in both cases, neither of our children were relinquished because their parents didn't love them or didn't want to parent or, or weren't capable of parenting. These are very capable. It's poverty. They're poverty orphans. Mm. And so again, like grabbing the thread and just pulling it till the thing is unraveling that led us down to this rock, just bedrock space of how their parents had been so incredibly economically disadvantaged and disempowered specifically as women and how few opportunities they had. Um, and so that's where we spend our time. Now that is not the only place or the right place or the best place. It's just, it's our place. Um, and so we are with great joy and passion and personal connection, we spend a lot of energy there. And so for, I have lots of friends who, I mean, in your org, for example, IJM, I just spent three days with Melissa Russell and, you know, listening to her tell this, I mean, she's just a star. She's just a star. I I don't don't know what to say. Oh yeah. She is the smartest person in any room. I love, (laughs) I love hearing her talk. That's literally how I describe her. She is the smartest person in the room, but she also has a wicked sense of humor, which is, I adore. But anyhow, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even hearing her tell stories about the work of IJM in the world right now and the most recent trip she was on, I'm like, you know what? We're all just doing our part. You know, we're pulling our weight and we're picking a thing. And I, my preference, now this is just a preference. I really love picking a thing and diving deep. Yeah. Um, just saying as to the, to the greatest degree that I can, um, I'm going to try to make the tiniest dent, um, as opposed to being like led around by the mouth, like this one, this one, that one, that one, it's all, cause it's all matters. Um, we like to sort of, if we can funnel into a space and really dig as hard and as long as we can while on our time on earth. Well, but the, yeah, and, and I get that and I feel that, but I also feel like there are some things that, and maybe correct this thinking if you don't agree with it, but like, like, that we can't not dive into. So like when something yeah. in Charlottesville ha- happens oh. and there's just oh, right. like, okay, there's racial inequality and I can't just be like, Oh, that's too bad. I have to do like, Oh yeah. Don't you have, like you have to dig in with some 100%. stuff. 100%. Like, right. yes, 100%. And this is a really weird time. Right. Uh, it's just a weird time to be a, a human person. And, <laughs> and, uh, on the regular, I, yeah, that's right. We're all just looking around going, is this real life? Like, is yeah. this, is this happening again or in the open? How is this? So to, thank you for pushing back on that because you are 100% right. There are issues in our time. I just had a really important conversation with a group of friends about this. Like, do we get to opt out of this? And my, I posit that we do not. Um, that this is part and parcel of being in my world, a good, a good Christian, also a good neighbor, a yeah. good citizen. This is part of building the democracy that, um, that we believe in and the community that we hope in. And so, no, I don't, I don't think we get to sit on the sideline when Charlottesville happens, because if we post about it, our aunt Linda is going to have a heart attack. You know, that's That's just not, that's not reason enough to stay silent. And so what's the worst thing that's going to happen if we engage with some of the cultural evils that are swirling in 
around us right now. If the worst thing that happens is someone's mean to us on Twitter, that's not reason enough to stay silent. Like we've surely we are made of sturdier stock than this, right? <laughs> surely we are able to stand for what is right and good and true, um, over a bit of criticism or pushback or being misunderstood. And so I think that keeps most people, I think that's what keeps most people sidelined that we are weirdly and disproportionately afraid of criticism. Um, and listen, let me just tell you as someone who <laughs> I receive a fair share of that. You do. We're I going do. to talk about your Google search results in a minute. Uh, I am so it's sorry really for traumatized. <laughs> um, <laughs> I will just tell you that uh, it's those reasons are not strong enough um, to not do the right thing. Doing the right thing feels stronger and better and truer, more lasting. I, I think about it like this a lot. Um, cause people ask me that question a lot. How do you manage it? How do you, how do you withstand it? Um, I think about myself often as a 90 year old, I think about, um, looking back on my life, um, as someone who is about to pass the baton. And the question I ask is what am I going to be proud of? Like, what am I going to be proud that I did? Where are the places where I will say that was hard or that was scary, but I am so happy that I wrote that into my legacy, that I wrote that advocacy into my story, that I can look back and say, um, as the church was abdicating on this issue, I went ahead and went headfirst into it to, to personal detriment. And I want to be able to say to my children and my grandchildren and their children that I stood by people who were marginalized, that I stood by people who were maligned, um, who were um, threatened. Um, and so that is a grid by which I make a lot of decisions. Yeah. Like in 45 years, am I going to be proud of this? Um, and when the answer is yes, when the answer is, Jen, do the right thing through your fear, then I'm going to do it. Okay. There is, there are pins in what you just talked about. And I want to okay. like, you, you get to choose your own adventure. Cause I okay. want to talk about Ethiopian adoption. Yeah. I want to talk about parenting and I want to talk about your Google search results. Where do you right. want to go next? <laughs> um, what, let's just start at the beginning. We can pick through all three of your pins. What, let's talk about okay. Ethiopia. All right, let's do it. First of all, my oldest daughter is from Ethiopia. Ah. Do we love, do we love that place so much? It's my favorite really country. Not a super deep question, but the yeah. food, the people, the hair, everything. all of it, everything, everything. I always say we go at least once a year. And last year we took our son Ben back with us. It's adopted from there. Um, yeah. and saw his mom and we are deeply connected to her. And, oh my gosh. um, do you so, cry immediately the whole time? I, mean, I, pretty, I did. I literally cried the, the whole entire time. <laughs> and, so uh, it was intense. very, very emotional, very intense trip. Um, but I do say that every time we go to Ethiopia, I, without question, this is not up for debate. I am the schlumpiest person in the country. Like these people are freaking beautiful and stylish. And I, a lot of people have the wrong impression of Ethiopia. And so it's, yeah. especially in Addis and some of the, yeah. like more, the bigger culture cities, it's, it's moving very into the developed world. And it's, you will clearly see a Western influence, but I mean, they're just so fancy and their hair yeah. is so fancy and their clothes are so fancy. And I just love it. But I'm like, I got to get out of this cardigan. Like yeah. I, I misread <laughs> the room. Like right. I am not showing up. Right. And you're never going to be able to dance as well as they dance. Uh, I mean, it's just much. everything. It's much. And I um, love the food. I don't know how you feel about the food, but oh, I'm, I'm here I for it. Love it. I love it. Do you know how to make injera? I don't, I haven't figured it out. Okay. Well, I did take a class. So I took a class, one of my huh. favorite Ethiopian restaurants here in town. We're close with the family that owns it. Um, they're all from Addis. And I took a class and under her tutelage, I was, a, I was brilliant. I was a person <laughs> who makes injera. Like I was the really? person who can do it. And then I get home and it's like all the magic just evaporates. Oh, I just can't yeah. do it. It's hard. Monkey sourdough pancakes and nobody yeah. likes them. And you're like lying to yourself that it tastes just like, and it's terrible. It's terrible. So I buy in Jera. That's the short, the That's short right. version of that story is I buy it from her, from her store. Um, and I, I just love all that spicy food. I will tell you that I will pass uh, and we have, we have that over when we're in Ethiopia and they'll bring out like one of the big, huge platters of food. I'm going to yeah. pass on the raw hamburger meat. 
hundred percent. Good hard pass. There's um, nothing about our tummies that are ready for that. I I'm don't not ready think. for that. Yeah, that's that is that what that is. That's ruining the rest of your trip. So um, <laughs> right. that's a no. But right. so much and the music. My favorite thing about Ethiopian culture. I mean, just hands down, and I just have no chill about it. Is I love the very very casual physical affection everywhere like yes everywhere you know these young hip cool guys with their cool hair and their cool jeans are holding hands when they yes. walk on the street and and their arms are linked and all the women have their arms around each other and it's so much kissing it's so much hugging it's so much hand holding and i i can't i cannot handle it i in fact anytime i'm with my friends on a trip or my my ministry partners my nonprofit partners they have to tell me in advance. They're like, you need to exercise some restraint because really no matter who I am walking by, <laughs> and if it's an Ethiopian, I deeply want them to hold my hand. And so I'm like a weird person on a first date who tries to like brush their hand with my right. hand, like right. my hand's here to be held. I'm giving, I'm giving you signals that I'm I one just, of you. I'm, I'm, I, I'm here for this. And they're like, you need to stop it. Like that yeah. is creepy behavior, first of all. And yeah. just stop doing it. But I just can't, I can't handle it. And I like when they sit by me and just reach over and hold my hand. I'm like, oh, yes. my this, life. <laughs> this makes me feel so good and affirmed. And when we would carry Eve around in the, in the little, uh, you know, like carrier thing, they, people like just strangers would walk up and just touch her hair and kiss uh, her face. And like the first few times it happens, it's yes. like, are you, t- are you going to take her? Like, are you, <laughs> this is how you steal a baby. But no, they're just, they just love, they just love Physically, beautiful. They love physically and they love kids specifically. When we brought Ben back last year, um, of course, he's obviously Ethiopian. And at the time he was 13, um, he, everywhere we went, I'm like, he's just mauled, literally mauled by people, just kissing him and hugging him and dragging him around. And I was just so dear. I mean, it's just so precious that we have a lot to learn from their culture. And, um, and we want to keep our kids connected to Ethiopian culture as much as we can, because they have so much to be proud of there. It's such a beautiful heritage, such a resilient, ancient people. And, um, it literally one of my favorite countries in the world. Oh, I, I love it. it and, and I'm curious, you know, and I, I know you've walked through this and considered this, but as a family who has got a lot of white people in it, you know, you're not a yes. white family, but like you are raising children who are brown and in America. Yes. And so they're going to have a different story and they're right. going to have different opportunities and challenges. How have you traversed that? What is that like in your home? And, and I'm, yeah. kind of just take me inside that. Mm-hmm. How old is your daughter? Eve is six and a half and yeah. rocking it in first grade. Yeah, rocking first grade. So yeah. we brought the kids home. Our youngest daughter's name is Remy. We brought them home when they were five and eight. So kind of right in your wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, they started, they immediately started kindergarten and second grade. And um, I say this with some shame and I, and I mean it sincerely. We were not, not, we were not half as educated or as engaged in, in black culture as we should have been. Um, Mm. I had a bit of a Pollyanna understanding of it and, um, a naive understanding of it, certainly a terribly whitewashed version literally of it. And so it took me, it's taken me a few years to, to deeply change the channel on my exposure, um, to injustice in the world of racial inequality, um, and division. And so I've, I've changed who I'm listening to, who my teachers are, who I'm reading, what I'm paying attention to. And so what I now understand of, of what it means to be black in a white America is uh, uh, just apples and oranges to what I understood then. And so, Um, so I'm ashamed of that. Like I, how I really had no business bringing black children into not just a white family, but a largely white community. Our community is actually pretty split between white and Mexican. Um, but it's very underrepresented in it with, with black families. And so I, I, I owed my kids to know more than what I knew when I brought them here. And so we've since tried to remedy that as much as we can. And it, and it has meant some of the most devastating, painful 
experiences and conversations with my kids. I just, I just didn't see coming. And, and we've had, I mean, my son, Ben is 14. He is, he is a gem. And I really mean that that's not just a mom being braggy. I mean, yeah. he is special and we've known it yeah, since we adopted yeah. him. He is anointed in a special way. He is smart. He is ambitious. He is good hearted. He yeah. is a really, really, really special kid, but you know what? He's a 14 year old black boy. His body's right. changing. He looks different. He lives in Texas and we have had to sit down and have the most heart wrenching conversation that black moms and black dads have been having with their black sons forever. Um, about what it means, how to be safe in culture, how to be safe when he is out from underneath the protection of his white parents. Um, and he's experienced racism, um, specifically since the election, he has experienced open racism from his classmates that he had never had a problem with before. And all this is real. It's not being made up. The, the black community is not making this up. Um, this is, this is real. This is true. It is their daily experience. And so being connected to that is both important and painful. Um, and so we're having to raise our children um, in, in a way that we do not have to raise our white kids. And that sucks. And it's yeah. not fair. And I'm very, very committed to righting these wrongs as much as is humanly possible in, in my little short minute on this earth. What is the, what is the walk out of these woods? I mean, cause it can't just be, okay, everybody has to have yeah. the talk with their kids and this is just kind of an acceptance and it's, it's almost yeah. like defensive, but how, what's the offensive move here to actually, oh, I mean, I know it's a massive question, yeah. but like, it just feels like hopeless and sad. It does. And maybe it, it is, right? Maybe I think, just stay I think, in that. The, I think right. the answer to that is nuanced and it's complex. Yeah, so right. it isn't one thing. Um, uh, but here's a good place to start. Um, the black community is woefully underrepresented. They're underrepresented in our um, in our government. They are underrepresented in our church leadership. They are underrepresented in our culture and entertainment. Um, and so representation matters. It, it absolutely matters when I, when I, let's just, let's just pick on government. That feels easy right now. Um, mm -hmm. when I look to the Senate and I'm trying to think who's making policy for my neighbors of color, let me just have a look. Let me just look at you. I don't know where you're from. I don't know what states you represent. I don't know who you are. I don't know what your history is. I'm just going to have a look at you. Um, because you are passing legislation that deeply affects um, people of color. They are almost entirely older white men. So that matters. Like that, that actually matters. At the end of their decisions are policies in a space where the black voice is incredibly underrepresented. So we get to vote to your question. We vote and our vote matters. And it is, I, I think it's, I, I've heard people say that all my life. And now I am, I am on the bandwagon. I am like, get your people registered, get yeah. vote in the primaries. Yeah. It matters. We need more women in leadership. We need more people of color in leadership because that shapes a portion of our culture, an important portion. Um, and then down on the ground, back where we live on the daily um, I think it's incredibly important. Like if, if your listeners are listening right now and, and they, they would say with honesty, I don't have any black friends. I don't, I don't right. have them in my home. I don't know where they are. We're not really connected in any meaningful way that doesn't feel like tokenism. Um, then that is a wonderful place to start because those sort of very honest human connections, like come over for dinner. Let's become friends. I would like to hear more about your story. I want to understand your lived experience. Um, not as like this condescending, how can, how can I help you? But more like right. I'm your neighbor. I'm your neighbor. We, I am your friend. That stuff matters. Um, because that slowly begins to transform our own hearts, uh, which slowly changes the way we engage our communities, um, and slowly changes what we are willing or not willing to endorse or tolerate. Um, and all of that matters. That's this groundswell space 
Um, so I think some of our change needs to come from the top down. And I think some of it needs to bubble up from the bottom and all of it matters. Yeah. But, but also part of that is nuanced too. I mean, it's the, 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 the onion can be peeled forever on this, right? But like, because part of it is like having friends of color, but also not using those friends to be your, like, like, I don't want there to be Uh fatigue, fatigue. Like I think Nicole, was it Nicole Walters on your show Uh last week kind of talked about this for a second. Like, yeah. She uses a lot of humor in it, but at the same time, there's just a fatigue with being like, oh, I see. I'm going to be that friend for yep. you who educates you. So part of it is like really fostering, I think, actual meaningful, honest relationships that totally. aren't just about like, you teach me about your life and I'll, you'll, you're kind of in a zoo, you know, like. <laughs> that's I'm actually to- exhausting for our black friends. I mean, that's one thing my black friends and, and the black leaders that I follow have taught me. One of the key things they've taught me is I'm not in charge of your education. Like, not only have I already done all the work, this is my lived exhausting experience. And so if you're interested, guess what? Pick up a book. It's not hard. So do your own work. Um, Do your own work. Do your own study. Do your own investigation. Um, I'm involved in a racial reconciliation group called Be the Bridge. My friend Latasha Morrison. She was on the show. She's the best. She's the best. she is amazing. Yes. Sorry to interrupt you, nope. but I love it. So you're yep. in a be the bridge group. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so, uh, she, part of the group, uh, in addition to having on the ground groups all over the United States and world, honestly, um, one of the other tools that she uses is this online Facebook group. And it's really big at this point. And one of the rules that she has, and this is a white person's rule, um, is when you are new to this group, if you're white, um, and you're coming here to learn, it is a fundamental rule that you literally cannot say one word in this group. You cannot respond. You cannot ask a, you have to listen for three solid months before you can engage. It's, and let me tell you white people who are used to being centered in every conversation, (laughs) I mean, they just struggle. They struggle so hard. Um, but it's such a good tool because she was like, if you'll just listen and pay attention and do your own learning without spouting ignorance for three months, you'll be surprised how differently you feel at the end of that three months, how much, you know, how much you've learned, how much you've heard. And so it, white people, it is possible to do your own work here, um, without putting the burden on your black friends, be they new or old. Um, because just know that when you do that to some degree, if that's all your relationship is built on, that's tiring and you're not a real friend. Mm. Um, and so I would not want to be invited into a friendship where the only thing they wanted for me was advice on how to be a writer. If every single conversation was like, and then tell me, tell me the next phase of your writing career. And then what I would just be like, God, there's more. Like, this is not a real friendship. You're using me. Um, and so anyway, thank you for bringing up that really important point um, that, that those relationships, that proximity to one another needs to be genuine like it would be with anybody else. Yeah, and I brought it up not because I'm so woke, but because I'm just figuring this out myself. Like, yeah. how, do, how do I do this well? How do I serve our family well, our community yeah. well, my daughter well, you know? And at the same time, you, you know, you still, you want to like step into someone else's shoes and learn about their world. Um how would you define activist? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, it's funny. I think that word's loaded, isn't it? And I think, I I think people probably hear it and they have an image, um, of kind of like a hard charging sign marching, you know, chain myself to the white house steps type, you know, (laughs) that is very aggressive and very, very vocal and, um, very demonstrative. And, you know, I think that's the, the word has a lot of connotations that probably conjures up, but, um, some of the activists that have moved me the most inspired me the most and led me the most, they're gentle and they're humble and, um, they're very, very gifted at dialogue. Um, and, um, so I, I think activist simply means it is some, anybody uh, of any personality type, um, in any geographical location and behind any issue that is simply, um, burden enough for their neighbor for their world in some way to activate whatever they have on their behalf. So activate their voice, um, activate 
putting a hard conversation into their community, um, activate advocacy where they're willing to stand with and for a people group or a cause, um, uh, to, where they're willing to say hard things to people who don't want to hear it, maybe. Um, and certainly who may, in the traditional sense of the term, be willing to to go to the hard places, to, to travel, to, to move to the policymakers. But, um, I think an ad, an activist is somebody who's going to be 90, like I mentioned earlier mm -hmm. and look back on the places that they decided to use whatever voice and whatever influence they have, be it big or small. Cause we all have, we all have both of those things. Um, and they say, I use that. I use that for my neighbor and I use that for my world in a way that was going to encourage human flourishing and human equality in any way um, and human dignity. And so I think that has a it's a huge umbrella under which a lot of work lives and it looks a lot of ways and it sounds a lot of ways and it takes on a lot of forms. Um, but I think if we're if we're 90 year olds looking back over the scope of our life, able to say I did use my voice in whatever capacity and I did use my influence in whatever capacity. I think we're going to be proud. Well, that was Jen Hatmaker. Uh, it's almost impossible to put a bow on the entire conversation because we covered a lot of ground, the church and Ethiopia and racial reconciliation. But, you know, there is something that has struck me as I've listened back to this interview and considered it for a little while. It is one that she approaches her life with a lot of humor. And even though we're talking about hard things, we're still laughing. And I think that there's a lot of value in that. And Jen is a very funny person. And I think that it is as, as much of a tool for her as it is a character trait, but also that she approaches it with a lot of grace for as many things as she shared with us that she was doing well. I think she shared many more mistakes that she has made and times that uh, were embarrassing. And I really, really respect the fact that she has got this gigantic platform and she is using it to encourage us to just be really honest and to be really brave and to think of our lives as 90 year olds. <laughs> that will stick with me. What will matter when I am an old man looking back on my life? If you would like to learn more about Jen, of course, I feel silly giving this stuff out because, of course, you know Jen Hatmaker, but here we go. We're doing the polite thing. You can go to jenhatmaker.com. There you can find out uh, about where she is speaking, where you can buy her books. Her newest book, by the way, Of Mess and Moxie, New York Times bestselling book. How about that? Can be bought there, and you can follow her on all social media. Jen, if you are listening, thank you so much for being on The New Activist. Of course, my hope is that this show is always just a conversation starter, and then we continue to talk to each other throughout the weeks. You can find us on New Activist Is, one word, both on Facebook and Twitter, as well as newactivist.is on the internet. A huge thanks to the brilliance who are on tour right now. They scored today's episode. I respect them greatly. You can find their music at thebrilliancemusic.com. Also, if you would, please head over to iTunes and give the show some stars and some comments. It is every single week helping people find the show, and it is also just very affirming to read. So thank you. Thank you for uh, doing that on iTunes, and also thank you for sharing on your own social media and stuff. It is truly just the, the audience is growing, and it is because you are validating it. So thank you so much for that. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Jen Hatmaker, my colleagues at International Justice Mission, as well as the relevant podcast network, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. Thank you for listening to the New Activist Podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. And for more relevant podcast network shows, check out the podcast section at relevantmagazine.com. 